Chapter Twenty Three of Trails End by George W. Ogden. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Ascalon curls its lip. It was the marvel and regret of people who made their adventures vicariously and lived the thrill of them by reading the newspapers that Ascalon had come to a so sudden and unmistakable end of its romance. For a little while, there was hope that it might rise against this Cromwell who had reached out a long arm and silenced it. For a few days there was satisfaction in reading of this man's exploits in this wickedest of all wicked towns, for newspapers sent men to study him and interview him and write of his conquest of Ascalon on the very battleground. Little enough they got out of Morgan, who met them kindly and talked of the agricultural future of the country, lying almost unpeopled beyond the notorious little city's door. Such as they learned of his methods of taming a lawless community, they got from looser tongues than the city marshals. Even from Chicago and St. Louis, these explorers, among the fallen temples of adventure, came, some of them veterans who had talked with Jesse James in his day, but recently come to a close. They waited around a few days for the shot that would remove this picturesque crusader, not believing any more than the rest of the world, including Ascalon itself, believed that this state of quiescence could prevail without end. While they waited, sending off long stories by telegraph to their papers every night, they saw the exodus of the proscribed begin, increase and end. The night-flitting women went first, urged away by the necessities of the flaccid fish which lived upon their shame. The gamblers and gamekeepers followed close behind. A little while, the small saloon-keepers, who had nosed the floor and licked up the crumbs which fell from Payton's bar, hung around, hoping that it was a flurry that would soon subside. They had big eyes for future prosperity. The overlord being now out of the way, and talked excitedly among themselves, even approached Morgan through an emissary with proposals of a handsome subsidy. But when they saw a Kansas City gambler come and strip Pedden's hall of its long bar and furnishings, of its faro tables and doctored roulette wheels, loaded them all on a car, and shipped them to his less notorious but safer town, they knew it was the end. Ascalon had fallen, with its most notable man, never to rise up again. The last of the correspondents left on the evening of the day that Judge Thayer set the rainmaker to work. He sent the obituary of Ascalon, as he believed, ahead of him by wire. Not that Ascalon was as dead as it appeared on the surface, where the gamblers would make it out to be. True, the undertaker's business had gone, and he with it. Druggist Gray's trade in bromides and restoratives, in demand after debauches, and repairs for bunged heads after the nightly carousals, had fallen away to nothing. The Elkhorn Hotel and the Santa Fe Cafe were feeding few, and the dealers in vanities and fancies, punctured hosiery, lacy waists, must pack up and follow those upon whom they had prospered. But there was as much business as before in lumber and hardware, implements, groceries and supplies for the cattle ranches, and the many settlers who were arriving 
without solicitation or proclamation and establishing themselves to build success upon the ruins of failure left by those who had gone before. It was only the absence of the wastrels and those who preyed upon them and the quiet of nights after raucous revelry that made the place seem dead. Ascalon was as much alive as any town of its kind that had no more justification for being in the beginning. It had more houses than it could use now, since so many of its population had gone. Empty stores were numerous around the square, and more would be seen very soon. The fair was over, the holiday crowd was gone, that was all. Rita Thayer came back the same evening, the last correspondent faced away from Ascalon. Morgan saw her in the headlight office, where she worked late that night to overtake her accumulated affairs. Her pretty head bent over a litter of proofs. Her door stood open as he passed, but he hastened by softly and did not return that way again. He felt that she had gone away from Ascalon on his account, fearful that she would meet him with blood fresh upon his hands. The attitude of Judge Thayer was but a faint reflection of her own, he was sure. It was best that they should not meet again, for blood had blotted out what had seemed the beginning of a tender regard between them. That was at an end. During the next few days little was seen of Morgan in Ascalon. When he was not riding on long excursions into the outlying country, he could have been found, if occasion had arisen demanding his presence on the square, in the station agent's office at the depot. There he spent hours hearing the little agent, whose head was as bald as a grasshopper's, nothing but a pale fringe from ear to ear at the back of his neck, recount the experiences that had fallen in his way during his five years' occupancy of that place. This period covered the most notorious history of the town. In that time, according to the check the agent had kept on them, no fewer than fifty-nine men had met violent death on the street and in the caves of vice in Ascalon. This man also noted keenly every arrival in these slack days, duly reporting them all to Morgan, for whom he had a genuine friendship and respect. So there was little chance of anybody slipping in to set a new brewing of trouble over the dying embers of that stamped-out fire. Morgan avoided the headlight office, for there was a sensitive spot in his heart that Rita's abhorrence of him hurt keenly. But more than that, he had the thought of sparing her the embarrassment of a meeting, even of his shadow passing her door. Twice he saw her at a distance in the street, and once she stood waiting as if to speak to him. But the memory of her face at Payton's door that night was with him always. He could not believe she would seek a meeting out of a spontaneous and honest desire to see him. Only because their lives were thrown together for a little while in that dice-box of fate, an avoidance seemed studied, and a thing that might set foolish tongues clapping, she paused and looked his way, as if waiting for him to approach. She was serving convention, not with a wish of her heart. So he believed, and turned the other way. Cattlemen from the range at hand, and several from Texas who had driven their herds to finish on the far-famed Kansas grass for the fall market, were loading great numbers of cattle in Ascalon every day. The drought was driving them to this sacrifice. Lean as their cattle were, they would be leaner in a short time. 
This activity brought scores of cowboys to town daily. Under the old order, business would have been lively at night, but most of the herdsmen were at leisure. As it was, they trooped curiously around the square. Some of them who had looked forward on the long drive to a hilarious blowout at the trail's end, resentfully sarcastic, but the greater number humorously disposed to make the most of it. Sober, these men of the range were very much like the reservation Indians in town on a holiday. They walked slowly around and around the square, looking at everything closely, saying little, to dispose themselves along the edge of the sidewalk after a while and smoke. There were no fights. Nobody let off a gun. When Morgan passed him on his quiet rounds, they nudged each other and looked after him with low comments, for his fame had gone far in a little while. These men had no quarrel with Morgan, disappointed of their revelry, thirsty after their long waiting, sour, as some of them were over finding this oasis of their desert dry. They only looked on him with silent respect. Nobody cared to provoke him. It was wise to give the road when a fella met that man. So they talked among themselves, somewhat disappointed to find that Morgan was not carrying his rifle about with him these peaceful days. Unusual weapon for a gunfighting man in that country. In this way, with considerable coming and going through its doors, yet all in sobriety and peace, Ascalon passed the burning, rainless summer days, but not without a little cheer in the hard glare of the parching range, not without a laugh and a chuckle and a grin behind the hand. The town knew all about the rainmaker at work behind the shielding rows of tall corn in Judge Thayer's garden. An undertaking of such scope was too big to sequester in any man's backyard. Whether the rainmaker believed in his formula, or whether he was a plain fraud who was a little sharper on weather conditions than most men, and good on an estimate of a drought's duration, he seemed to be doing something to earn his money. Day and night, he kept something burning in a little tin stove with a length of pipe that came just above the corn, sending up a smoke that went high toward the cloudless sky before the wind began to blow in the early morning hours and after it ceased that evening, after its established plan. During the day, the smoke dispersed very generally over town, causing some coughing and sneezing and not a little swearing and scoffing. Sulfur, mainly, the doctor and druggist Gray pronounced the chemical to be. It was a sacrilege, the Baptist preacher declared, an offering to Satan, from the smell of it, rather than a scientific assault upon the locked heavens, to burst open the windows and let out a dash of rain. If the effort of the mysterious stranger brought anything at all, it would bring disaster, the preacher declared, a cyclone, very likely, and lightning, in expression of the Almighty's wrath. Those who did not accept it wrathfully as the preacher, or resentfully as Druggist Gray, from whom the experimenter bought none of his chemicals, or humorously, as the doctor and many of higher intelligence, had a sort of sneaking hope that something might come of it. If the rain man could stir up a commotion and fetch a soaker, it would be the salvation of that country. The range would revive, streams would flow, water would come again into dry wells, and the new farmers who had come in would be given hope to hang on another year, 
and by their trade keep Ascalon from perishing utterly. But mainly the disposition was to laugh. Judge Thayer was a well-meaning man, but easy. He believed he was bringing a doctor in to cure the country's sickness, where all of his hopes were staked out in town lots, when he had brought only a quack. A hundred dollars, even if the faker made no more, was a pretty good pay for seven days' work, they said. A dollar's worth of sulfur would cover his expenses. And if it happened to turn out a good guess, and the rain did blow up on time, Judge Thayer was just fool enough to give that fellow a letter that would help him put his fraud through in another place. It did not appear as the days passed that the rainmaker was driving much of a hole in the hot air that pressed down upon that tortured land. No commotion was apparent in the upper regions. No cloud lifted to cut off for an hour the shafts of the fierce sun. Ascalon lay panting, exhausted, dry as tow, the dust of driven herds blowing through its bare, bleak streets. Gradually, as dry burning day succeeded the one in all particulars like it that had gone before, what little hope the few had in Judge Thayer's weather doctor evaporated and passed away. Those who had scoffed at the beginning jeered louder now, making a triumph of it. The Baptist preacher said the evil of meddling in the works of the Almighty was becoming apparent in the increasing severity of the hot wind. Ascalon, for its sins past and its sacrilege of the present, was to writhe and scorch and wither from the face of the earth. For all this interest in the rainmaker's efforts did not lax. People sniffed his smoke, noting every change in its flavor, and pressed around Judge Thayer's garden fence, trying to get a look at the operations. Judge Thayer was not a little indignant over the scoffings and denunciations, and this impertinent curiosity to pry upon what he gave them to understand was his own private venture. Keep off a safe distance from this iniquitous business, he warned with sarcasm. Don't lean on the fence and risk the wrath of the Almighty. Let the correction of Providence fall upon his own shoulders, which had been carrying the sins of Ascalon a long time. Don't get so close as to endanger their wise heads under the blow. At the same time, he gave them to understand that if any rain came of the efforts of his weather doctor, it would be his, the judge's, own private and individual rain wrung from denying nature by science, and that science paid for by the judge's own money. The scoffers laughed louder at this, the sniffers wrinkled their noses a little more, but the Baptist preacher only shook his head, the hot wind blowing his wide overalls against his thin legs. Morgan stood aloof from the doubters, hopers, scoffers, and all, saying no word for or against the rainmaker. Every morning now, he took a ride into the country, to the mystification of the town, coming back before the heat mounted to its fiercest, always on hand at night to guard against any outbreak of violence among the visitors. There were not a few in town who watched him away each morning in the hope that something would overtake him and prevent his return. Many more who felt their hearts sink as he rode by their doors with the fear that each ride would be his last. Out there in the open, some enemy might be lying behind a clump of tangled briars. These women's prayers went with the city marshal as he rode. On a certain morning, 
Morgan overtook Joe Lynch, driving toward town with his customary load of bones. Morgan walked his horse beside Joe's wagon to chat with him, finding always a charm of originality and rather more than superficial thinking about the old fellow that was refreshing in the intellectual stagnation of the town. Is that Rain Crow fellow still working over in town? Joe inquired as soon as greetings had passed. I suppose he is. I don't believe his seven days are up yet. This is his sixth. I'm keeping notches on him. I thought maybe he'd skinned out. Do you think he'll be able to fetch it? I hope he can, but I've got my doubts, Joe. Yes, and I've got more than doubts. Science is all right, I reckon, as far as I ever heard. But no science ain't able to rake up clouds in the sky like you'd rake up hay in a field and fetch on a rain. Even if they did get the clouds together, how are they going to split them open and let the rain out? That would be something of a job, Morgan admitted. You've got to have lightning to bust them, and no science that ever was could make lightning. I'm here to tell you, son, if some fella did happen on how it was done, what do you reckon become of that man? Why, they do make it, Joe. They make it right over in Ascalon. Keep it in jars under the table at the depot. Didn't you ever see it? That ain't the same stuff, Joe said, with high disdain, almost contempt. Wire lightning and sky lightning ain't no more alike than milks like whiskey. Well, say the science did make up a batch of sky lightning, but I ain't given in it can be done. How they gonna get it up to the clouds? How they gonna make it do the busting at the right time? That's more than I can tell you, Joe. It's too deep for me. Yes, or any other man. They'd let it go all at once and cause a water spout. That's about what they'd do. And between a water spout and a dry spell, give me the dry spell. I was never in one, but I've seen them tearing up the hills. Then you know what they are. It'd suit me right up to the handle if this fella could bring a rain. For I tell you, I never saw so much suffering and misery as these settlers are going through out here on this cussed prairie right now. Some of these folks is hauling water from the river as much as thirty mile. I notice all the creeks and branches are dry, but it's only a little way to plenty of water all over this country if they'll dig. Some of them have put down wells during this dry spell and hit all the water they need. There's a sheet of water flowing under this country from the mountains in Colorado. Oh, you get out! Just the same as the Arkansas River, only spread out for miles, Morgan insisted. A drought here doesn't mean anything to that water supply. I've been riding around over this country, trying to show people that. Most of them think I'm crazy till they dig. I don't guess you're cracked yet, Joe allowed, but you will be if you stay in this country. If it wasn't for bones, you wouldn't find me hanging around here. I'd make for Wyoming. They tell me there's any amount of bones that never been touched up in that country. I noticed several other wagons out gathering bones. They'll soon clean them up here, Joe. They're all taken to it, Joe said, with the resentment of a man who feels competition. Horning in on my business. What's mine by rights of being the first man to go into it in this blame country? Let them. Let em run their teams down, scouring around after bones. I'll be here to pick up the remains of them all. I was here first. I've stuck through the rushes of them fellas that come into this country and dried up, and I'll be here when this crowd of them dries up. 
them fellas haul in bones and trade em at the store for flour and meal they don't get half out of em what i do out of mine and they're hurting the business driving it down to nothing hotter than usual this morning morgan remarked not so much interested in bones and the competition of bones wind's dying down i noticed that some time ago going to leave us to sizzle without any fannin rather have it that way myself this eternal wind dries a man's brains up after a while i'd say if i was anywhere else it was fixing up the rain or for a cyclone too late in the season for him joe declared not willing to grant even that diversion to the drought-plagued land of bones joe reverted to the bones he could not keep away from bones there was not much philosophy in him today not much of anything but a plaint and a denunciation of competition in bones morgan thought the wind must be having its effect on joe's brains they seemed to be so hydrated that morning that they would have rattled against his skull morgan considered riding on and leaving him at the risk of giving offence dismissed the notion when they rose a little hill and looked down on ascalon not more than a mile away i believe there's a cloud coming up over there said morgan pointing to the southwest which said joe rousing as briskly as if he had been doused with a bucket of water cloud no that ain't no cloud that's dust more wind behind that a regular sandstorm ever been through one of em in nebraska morgan replied with detached attention watching what he still believed to be a cloud lifting above the lazy horizon nothing like sandstorms in this country joe discounted never willing to yield one point in derogative comparison between that land and any other fella told me one time he saw it blow sand so hard here it started in wearing a knot-hole in the side of his shanty in the evening and by morning the whole blame shack was gone eat them boards up clean that fella said didn't leave nothing but the nails but i always thought he was stretching it a little joe added not a gleam of humor to be seen anywhere in the whole surface of his wind-dried face that's a cloud all right morgan insisted passing the reduction by attrition of the settler's shack cloud said joe throwing up his head with renewed alertness he squinted a little while into the southwest bust my hub if it ain't a cloud coming up too coming right along say do you reckon that rain crow fella brought that cloud up from somewheres he didn't have anything to do with it morgan assured him grinning a little over the quick shift in the old man's attitude for there was awe in his voice no i don't reckon said joe thoughtfully but it looks kind of suspicious the cloud was lifting rapidly as summer storms usually come upon that unprotected land sullen in its threat of destruction rather than promise of relief a great dark fleece rolled ahead of the green-hued rain curtain the sun bright upon it the hush of its oncoming over the waiting earth no breath of wind stirred no movement of nature disturbed the silent waiting of the dusty land save the lunging of foolish grasshoppers among the drooping withered sunflowers beside the road as the travelers passed i'm going to see if i can make it to town before she hits said joe lashing out with his whip lordy ain't it a-comin i think i'll ride on said morgan feeling a natural desire for shelter against that grim-faced storm 
The oncoming cloud had swept its flank across the sun before Morgan rode into town, and in the purple shadow of its threat people stood before their houses watching it unfold. In Judge Thayer's garden, it was the house Morgan had fixed on that first morning of his exploration, the rainmaker was firing up vigorously, sending up a smoke of such density as he had not employed in his labors before. This black column rose but a little way, where it flattened against the cool current that was setting in ahead of the storm, and whirled off over the roofs of Ascalon to mock the scoffers who had laughed in their day. Morgan stabled his horse and went to the square, where many of the town's inhabitants were gathered, all faces tilted to watch the storm. Judge Thayer was there, glorifying in the success of his undertaking, sparing none of those who had mocked him for a sucker and a fool. A cool breath of reviving wind was moving, fresh, sweet, rain-scented, as hopeful, as life-giving, as a reprieve to one chained among faggots at the stake of intolerance. "'It looks like you're going to win, Judge,' Morgan said. "'Win? I've won. Look at it, pouring rain over in Glenmore, the advance of it not three miles from here. It'll be here inside of five minutes, rain and pitchforks.' But it did not happen so. The rain appeared to have taken to dallying on the way, in spite of the thickening clouds over Ascalon. Straining faces, green-tinted in the gloomy shadow of the overhanging cloud, waited, uplifted, for the first drop of rain. The dark outriders of the storm wheeled and mingled, turned and rolled, low over the dusty roofs. Lightning writhed the rain curtain that swept the famished earth, so near at hand that the sensitive could feel it in their hair. Deep thunder sent its tremor through the ground, jarring the windows of Ascalon that had looked in their day upon storms of human passion which were but insect strife to this. Yet not a drop of rain fell on roof, on trampled way, on waiting face, on outstretched hand in all of Ascalon. Judge Thayer was seen hurrying from the square, making for home and the weather doctor, who was about to let the rain escape. He's going to head it off, said one of the scoffers to Morgan, beginning to feel a return of his exaltation. It's going to miss us, said Druggist Gray, his head thrown back, his Adam's apple like an elbow of stovepipe in his thin neck. We may get a good shower out of one end of it, Conby still hoped, pulling for the rain as he might have boosted for a losing horse. Nothing more than a sprinkle of that much, said the station agent, shaking his head, which he had bared to the cool wind. He got him firing up like he was trying to hive a swarm of bees, one reported, coming from the seat of scientific labors. It's breaking. It's passing us by. We'll not get a drop of it. So it appeared. Overhead the swirling clouds were passing on. In the distance the thunder was fainter. The wind began to freshen from the track of the rain. The pigeons came out of the courthouse tower for a look around. Light broke through the thinning clouds. Not more than a mile or two southward of Ascalon, the rain was falling in a torrent. The roar of it still quite plain in the ears of those who thirst for its cooling balm was to be denied. The rain was going on, after soaking and reviving Glenmore, which place Judge Thayer would have given a quarter of his possessions to have had it miss. A mockery, it seemed, a rebuke, a chastisement, 
the way nature conducted that rainstorm. Judge Thayer urged the rainmaker to his greatest efforts to stop it, turn it, bring it back. Smoke green and black went up in volumes to stream away on the cool, refreshing wind. Sulfur and rosin and pitch were identified in that smoke as surely as the spectrum reveals the composition of the sun. But the wind was against the rainmaker. Nature conspired to mock him before men as the quack that he was. The gloom of storm cleared from the streets of Ascalon. The worn and tired look came back into the faces that had been illumined for a little while with hope. Farther away, fainter, the thunder sounded, dimmer the murmur of the withdrawing rain. The cool wind still blew like whispered consolation for a great, a pangful loss, but it could not soften the hard hearts of those who had stood with lips to the fountain of life and been denied. The people turned again to their pursuits, their planning, their gathering of courage to hold them up against the blaze of the sun, which soon must break upon them for a parching season again. The dust lay deep under their feet, gray on their roofs, where shingles curled like autumn leaves in the sun. The rainmaker sent up his vain, his fatuous, foolish, infinitesimal breath of smoke. The rain went on its way. Ah, oh, hell, said Ascalon, in its derisive, impious way. Ah, oh, hell. End of chapter 23